Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What the Future podcast, brought to you by Future Leaders Mentoring. This week, we're talking about neurodiversity. I'm joined by Emma Wee and Kerry Maisie this week. Hi, both. Hello. How are you doing? Hello. Cool. Thanks for uh, jumping on this week. Um, really intrigued to learn about this topic, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to you both talking and, and seeing where the direction of travel takes us in the conversation. So um, let's get into it. So first question then uh, to you, Emma, is what is neurodiversity to you? So effectively, it's definitely wired brains. So obviously, we all have one. Um, and the way that they wire up is determined very much kind of by our genetic makeup. Um, if you look at neurodiversity as a, as a kind of an umbrella term, there are four different strands to it. Um, one is applied neurodiversity, which is about things like dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia, things like that. Those are things that you're if your parents have got them, you're typically going to have a sort of those traits because that's part of the way that your brain's wired. Um, clinical neurodiversity, which is around autism, uh, neurodevelopmental things like ADHD, Tourette syndrome. And then we've also got acquired neurodiversity, which can be things like that happen to your brain later on in life, such as depression, anxiety, um, Ehlers-Danlos, chronic fatigue. We've now got long COVID is seen as an acquired neurodiversity things that impact the way that your brain functions and processes. And those are things that might happen later on in life. And actually, one of the interesting things about acquired neurodiversities is that they can have more of an impact on your underlying conditions than the conditions themselves that you're born with, because um, you can learn to live and kind of find strategies and kind of go towards things that kind of meet your strengths when you're born with something. But when you have to deal with a different brain later on in life, that can throw quite a curveball and you, you need to kind of suddenly deal with a, a, a different type of brain. Like, say, for instance, if you've had a brain injury, like a stroke or something. Cool. Thanks, Emma. Um, I can see you nodding to a couple of the points there, Kerry. Um, what, what, what's, what's your view on, on the question? It's really interesting because I, if, if I'm honest, I hadn't really thought too much about the, the getting um, or having neurodiversity as an issue later in later in life. Because I've I've born with um, with dyslexia. Um, I've, my parents have dyslexia. So exactly like you say, Emma, and my three brothers have dyslexia. So I've always lived with dyslexia. And I, I, I feel that I'm much more able to... Um, to cope and adapt to that because it's always been it's always been there I've never known anything different so you you learn to work around that and it's only when you're put in um, in situations which are out of the normal and then maybe all of those mechanisms that you've got in place suddenly don't work anymore do you appreciate um, how different sometimes sometimes you are so I think what neurodiversity means to me is is being is being different um and and having to to work through some of those challenges whilst also trying to be true to myself and not wanting to change myself to be like anyone else either. Cool. I think that's really true. And I think what I see 
I get a, a clients from kind of because I, I coach neurodiversity specifically so it's a very practically based kind of type of coaching so I look at the way that people's brains are wired and then look at the way they're working and try and kind of find ways of helping them work with their brains rather than against the brains because obviously we're working in a very non-neurodiverse world so you know sort of a working style is not necessarily a working preference for people but unless you understand what's going on in your brain and you have a context of why things are, certain things are going on in your brain then you can't start to say okay well I know that works well for me but that doesn't and it's about that self-awareness about how things work for you that then allows people to be um, self-reliant and, and kind of neurodiverse people by their nature are incredibly resilient anyway because they've just got to work that little bit harder but also then being able to advocate for themselves rather than feeling as though they have to be fixed or they have to be rescued or they have to be helped um, and being seen as themselves rather than being seen as a label which is so much of what happens you know sort of you know I even I over the years it's taken me a while to say openly to people I'm autistic I am but it kind of you know the 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 standard kind of understanding of people who are autistic are either they don't speak properly they rock in a corner they hack the pentagon and all their um, serial killers so it doesn't really give you a great into a conversation typically um so you know it, but that's that's what i mean it's like you want to be able to see or a person wants to be able to see themselves in the wider picture rather than just be seen as a label yeah definitely and just just building on a couple of things you've said there and, and just um asking you Kerry to sort of develop a bit more on what you've said on, on from a personal experience point of view um you know tell us tell us a bit more about what 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 what's gone on in your life then um like you say I I sort of I knew well, I feel like I knew from an early age that there was something slightly different about me I, I was very um intellectually you know I, I loved absolutely loved reading I loved going to school I loved learning um I was born late in August which meant um I, I started out being the oldest in a particular class and then they decided I was doing well so they moved me up so I became the youngest and and I was doing you know really doing well at, at, at school from, from a young age but there were certain things I just couldn't I couldn't do and I just didn't understand why was I having issues so mental arithmetic was an example my spelling grammar was atrocious um and I remember being put into um it, it was called like the reading caravan where I was sort of sent off to this little caravan to look <laughs> to um to sort out my reading well, my reading wasn't a problem but they'd they thought well if if they could work on the reading maybe my grammar my spelling would get better but that wasn't that wasn't the issue um, so I, like I say, always knew that there was something, um, something different. And I, in fact, approached a teacher of mine when I was about eight years old to say, my parents have got this thing and my brothers like it as well. And there's something different. Um, but there just wasn't the recognition, you know, I'm sure my age now, but there wasn't the recognition back, back in the day. So it, it really, my personal experience has always been about there's this thing that's, not the same as other people and what do I need to do to adjust that to be able to be able to play the same playing field you know level playing field as everyone else so it's always been about that that resilience and I think Emma you know it's exactly right it, it's that constant challenge and that constant right okay this isn't quite as easy for me as everybody else I'm going to do this but then on the flip side 
is, you know, I, I feel like I've personally benefited from it, not just from a resilience perspective, but also from because my brain's wired differently, I bring a different approach. You know, I'm a problem solver. I'm the person who gives something that's really ambiguous. You, we, we want to do this strategy. We want to do this project and I'll make it real because I can see how things connect. I, I can see the bigger picture. So I found it a superpower as much as I found it, you know, a challenge. Yeah. And that's that's those are what you've described there are perfect examples of neurodiverse strengths, you know, having really good spatial reasoning, really able to kind of, um, you know, read nonverbal cues, being able to build rapport, problem solve, thinking out of the box. You know, when you have dyslexia, you've got something that's known as a spiky profile. So you'll score really high on those things that you're really good at. And then the things that are kind of quite low score. So it's kind of a real disparity between things like working memory, processing speed and decoding sound. So those are the things that I describe it. It's a bit like a yo-yo. You'll think of an idea really quickly, but then you won't necessarily have the structure or the kind of um, strategies to be able to either plan it or kind of be able to see how long it's going to take or be able to kind of organize your thoughts in the moment that takes the extra processing um and i always describe processing speeds a bit like the rev counter on your car it's how much cognitive power you've got in that particular moment so if you imagine the car's not in gear but you put your foot down on the accelerator that's where the kind of needle flies up and down now when you're dyslexic you've got approximately 40 percent of your available processing given up to decoding and encoding sounds so that's 25% more than someone who's non-dyslexic. So that extra 25% is that extra work that your brain is doing all the time. So you're on a slight deficit in terms of working memory and processing speed rather. So it means that you kind of, yes, when you've got everything in place, you'll be able to work a lot faster than people who are non-neurodiverse. But if you're tired or you're anxious or you're, you know, you're kind of a little underpowered or oversaturated with sound, then it, you, those things that you find more tricky, like handling sounds and words, are going to be even more challenging because your processing speed will, will drop further. So that thing about you were saying about numbers in particular, that extra spatial reasoning you do, it's very common for dyslexic people to transpose numbers because you're flipping things around, seeing which way that piece of information fits. And similarly, when you're reading words, there may be letters that suddenly become invisible or swap around. And that's to do with how you process sound. There's kind of a resetting of sound that kind of happens in the brain. Um, so, you know, when people understand or when you know why that's happening, then you can put something in place to kind of manage that for yourself. Um, the problem is when you're a child is you're seeing other children around you doing things differently and you feel other and then you you know you've been forced through this sausage factory of kind of you must learn in a particular way that that sets up you know those insecurities that I'm not as good as everyone why can't I do it I should be able to do things differently um, and I think sort of having a journey to be able to say uh, yeah I can do these things because of the way my brain's wired not in spite of mm. is is a really kind of um empowering place to get to well I mean it's, it's, oh sorry I was gonna I say, was gonna was, say yeah, yeah it, crack on yeah it's, it's so interesting because you know I've it's it's been trial and error for me I, I I've I've never really you know I've never been coached on oh you can do it this way I've sort of fail fast if you like and like that that doesn't work and this does so I think and it, it was really interesting probably about 
a month ago, I was on a course for for people who wanted to step into a director role in in the company that I work for, um, and they they had actors come in pretending to be sort of CEOs, and you had to go in and pretend you were in a meeting, and it. <laughs> I, I found it really, really challenging. And I think lots of people found it challenging for different reasons. But all of a sudden, it was as if those um, tools that I normally use were ripped out from under me. And one of the main ones was a PowerPoint slide. Because I'm quite visual, I like to be able to draw out what that strategy looks like, draw out what I'm going to, because that helps me understand what I'm saying as much as you know it helps the people looking at the PowerPoint slide as well and we weren't able to do that in this in, you know in this little test environment that they had set up it was all right Kerry what do you think and without these tools all of a sudden I was like floundering but I hadn't realized until that moment in time how much of a crutch that was to me I thought that's just you know Kerry does a good PowerPoint slide um, I, I hadn't realized that it was actually a, a, like a coping tool you know, something that helped me overcome some of the challenges I had because, you know, with with having dyslexia. So it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, how how quickly could children learn those things without like I had to do and sort of fall over and go, yep, this doesn't work. Yeah. And that does, you know, if you could provide those tools early on. Yeah. I think it's we'll incredibly important, you know, around about the seven, age of seven or eight, we wire into our brains those kind of keystone understandings about the things that make us feel safe, both positive and negative. And this, this, the messages that we receive around us get ingrained into us at that point. So, you know, when we have insecurities as adults, what's generally been triggered is that fear and the insecurity of the kind of the child, which is why we kind of tend to regress slightly. Um, but it takes the logical part of the brain to kind of go, no, actually the facts are I've done all this other stuff um, to disprove that, you know, you're not that sort of capable kind of adult or sort of the, to disprove that you're not the, the capable child. Um, I think what's really interesting about kind of being in that situation, this is where kind of coaching would have might have helped is that, you know, being putting a situation where you weren't able to use, and I wouldn't say a crutch, it's a strategy. You're supporting your brain to kind of do something the way that to allow it to do the things it's really good at. So, you know, that's where the idea of reasonable adjustments in it come in. It's not unreasonable to ask to present something in a visual way because that's how your brain works best rather than having to do it all through words and sounds, which is where you're going to have to work extra hard in comparison to someone who's not dyslexic. So that's, you know, reasonable adjustments are there to kind of help even out that playing ground so that you're not then having to do more work than the person next to you. You know, um, an example of um, a sort of client I had once, and she was a, a, a journalist and she was dyslexic and dyspraxic. So dyspraxia is quite often diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, um, which is kind of more of a spatial reasoning. So kind of lots of screens, very confusing processes take long to, to, to kind of get there. And speech can also be impacted as well. Um, and before she had her reasonable adjustments with assistive software, so she had mind mapping software, text to speech recognition software, things like um, text help, read and write, and Dragon, which is speech to, uh, dictation uh, software. It used to take her two weeks to research and write a document. And after she got all her reasonable adjustments, it took her two and a half hours. Wow. 
it's literally a no-brainer you know and that's how much extra work she was having to do in order to kind of keep up and kind of you know feeling she had to work harder and longer than everyone else whereas in fact if she just had the tools to support the way that her brain needed to work at the lower ends of her kind of processing then she could just do what she needed to do wow I mean, just just sitting back and listening to you both talking. I mean, clearly, Kerry, you're hearing some of the the science behind it for the first time, just looking at your face, and and Emma, some of the sort of great examples you're bringing out as well. It's just great to listen to. I'm just wondering if we can build on maybe some of those good and bad examples as well, because there'd be people listening to this that wouldn't necessarily have had coaching. Um, probably quite a lot of people that that would be still going along and maybe still referring to things as crutches rather than strategies because of the positions they found themselves in. And there would be people that would be in the same situation as Kerry at workshops, being forced down the same track as everybody else. Um, And I don't know if I'd refer to that as a good example or a bad example. It's just an example, maybe. But um, maybe starting with you, Emma, can you share with us some of the good and bad examples you've seen and heard? Well, I think one of the things that I've seen over the last sort of eight and a half years whilst I've been coaching is how different neurodiversity is now seen. Um, I mean, it's nowhere near to the kind of like full inclusive kind of, you know, sort of point where people kind of just don't see the difference. But when I started, you know, reasonable adjustments and coaching, that kind of supportive intervention was seen as an active way to manage someone out of their role. And I'd say that that was probably true for about 70 to 80 percent of my clients where they were already on a performance improvement plan. Um, This was the last resort. And because they had a diagnosis, they weren't allowed to be booted out without having the reasonable adjustments put in place. Um, But quite a lot of the time, people would have the reasonable adjustments and then they would be terminated anyway. Um, And I think what's really been interesting over the last, particularly the last three or four years, is how it started to be recognised as something that is an investment in an individual you know how much more you can get out of someone and I think the the key thing about reasonable adjustments is all sort of that this process is that once you've kind of ironed out all the strategies that kind of are that mean that someone's not working at their best then you can start to see capacity then you can start to see where someone is actually at if then kind of working you know down in the mud and not being able to kind of do stuff because they don't know how to do it to fit their brains then they're typically not going to be able to shine and they're just going to be um sort of seen as incapable and that's that's the real problem when it comes to kind of you know a diagnosis if you like so disclosing lets people or make helps people kind of expose them in a way they feel really vulnerable if they're kind of disclosing their kind of condition um I think one of the worst examples um that I ever saw was where someone who was dyspraxic so remember this is fine which is can be your fingers your throat fine motor control um and they were also dyslexic and someone in their office took off keys on their keyboard and swapped them around for a joke and I just thought it was just so cruel and so unnecessary, actually. Um, so that was, you know, that, that was just shocking behaviour. And and that is dis- that is direct discrimination against someone who, you know, who actually, you know, needed to do, not have to deal with that extra stuff. Yes. Um, but in terms of kind of the positive side of things, I think when what I've seen from, from people 
who have gone through a journey of coaching or kind of that I've been working with, the point that they get to understanding that there is a context for the way that their brain works and that they're not, you know, suffering adversely from mental health condition, ill mental health, um, that there is a reason that they're not stupid, that they're not incapable, um, that they have tremendous strengths that they can bring to an organisation. And if the place that they're in right now, I would say, don't let this position, don't let this experience right now define you going forward. There will be somewhere that actually matches your strengths and that you can be sure to advocate for yourself this may not be it. It doesn't have to be the be all and end all. There's always something next. Cool. Thanks, Emma. Um, Kerry, just... Um... From from my perspective, the I suppose the, the positives is it's just that people are talking about neurodiversity in a much more positive kind of way. And I, I think... You know, people like Greta have, have done wonders um, for that, you know, ju- just to be able to, to see people in a different light and see our differences as our strengths rather than they're different. So, you know, let's put them in that reading caravan um, that, <laughs> that I had back in the day uh, in, in, in our work, you know, in my place of work. It's um, it's encouraged that you know I, I really wanted to be an advocate. I wanted to be a role model. I wanted to stand at the level that I'm at and say, you know, I've, I've got this far and I've, I've mm. be, you know, I've got dyslexia. And it, it took, if I'm honest, you know, I've always I've always been quite open about it. I don't know why, um, but I've always been, you know, quite. I, I'd shared it, um, even though at the point in time I thought it was, you know, people would think quite. Um, badly of me or or judge me I've always been very open about it because I just thought well it's just part of me but there was a bit of a turning point where I read an article um I think it was from Ernst and Young and they started talking about dyslexia as a superpower and then I started feeling proud of it I was proud that I was different I was proud of those extra skills that I've got proud of the resilience that I've got so you know it's, I think that's that's the positive bit is it is being seen as a lot more you know as a lot more positive and I think the negative part you know the worst experience probably for me in a very early days of my career I will mention any names um, but I was I worked on a team showing my age again where the, a call would come through and I would need to transfer that call so it's sort of like a PA and I would transfer the call to to my manager or you know other managers in the group and they all had their little I think it was about a five digit number and I couldn't I couldn't dial the number I could remember the number but I couldn't dial the number and it'd be like Kerry you know is this number and I'd be like oh and I'd press the numbers the wrong way around and <laughs> I get into all sorts of strife but they kept getting the call to come to me to try because they were, Kerry needs to practice this if she can't get this right you know she's a terrible person and I felt bullied for want of a better word you know I felt like I was picked on for this one little part of my job that I really really struggled with and I couldn't explain why um, and it wasn't laziness and it wasn't because I was stupid I just couldn't I just couldn't get that number onto that keyboard out of my head into yeah. the little keyboard but that's it. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And that, I mean, that sounds like a pretty terrible experience because on the face of it, you're thinking, well, hang on, this is a simple task and the, the people are asking me to do it. I don't understand why I can't do it because I'm an intelligent person. 
Um, yet they're, they're obviously forcing me to do it, almost to call out the fact that I can't do it. Yep, that's exactly it. Hmm. I think there was a kind of a, a real um, sense, and I, sort of, I think one of the things about kind of people being promoted to being managers is that they don't automatically accrue skills as a manager by virtue of getting that post and that's one of the problems is that actually if they're insecure about their own process what they will typically want to try and do is fix what they see as to be a problem and if someone's not doing stuff the way that they expect it to be done or that they you know their irritation is typically more about their own stuff rather than the individual's own development so kind of forcing someone to do a task because they think they should get it better rather than asking well what's going to work well for you Mm. it's a very simple question but actually you know someone goes oh I don't know well like would you prefer to do it this way or this way and it's always having options in that case that always helps progress a conversation rather than saying you have to do it this way you know you can't drag someone out of a corner they need to be able to step out of a corner to be able to kind of move forward um so i think it's really important that this kind of awareness is part of managers development because quite often there will be an essential kind of language if you like of how they talk to colleagues and employees about this sort of thing where they might kind of go, oh, well, I think you're dyslexic. Well, you, you're really autistic, aren't you? Which is completely inappropriate. Um, but there has to be a better way of, of informing and kind of giving people kind of the confidence to be able to have those conversations about more to do with, well, I'm noticing that you're struggling keeping to time or that it's taking you um, longer than, you know, you might expect to kind of get through that piece of work is there something that I can do to help support you you know would you like some additional help in that area rather than saying kind of coming up with a list of things that you're not getting to standard which then kind of makes people feel even more rubbish about themselves yeah and I guess for for me um I know when I look back on my career, there, there would have been lots of times where I'd have made mistakes, either following a leadership style that I thought was the right one, or sort of just adhering to the culture, or, or maybe just not knowing enough about how I wanted to, to manage. But if, if I was in that situation now, I just wonder, what, what's, the, what's the sort of right approach? Do I say, do I give lots of examples? Do I try and find out more about the individual? Um what, what, what's, the, what's the right approach, Emma? I get this asked quite a lot, and I suppose it's about, you know, sort of being able to um, ask, the, you know, what is working well and what's not working well. Okay. So if you know how you can apply, and it might be something that's kind of working well outside of work. So if someone kind of is always turning up late for work, but they managed to get to the gym on time. Okay, so what do you do in order to get to the gym on time that we can then model across you getting into work? Because there will be somewhere in your life where you're doing all the things that you need to, but just not necessarily in the right place for work. Um, And, you know, being able to, and coming from a place of kind of wanting to support and develop an individual rather than trying to fix them. I think that's that's a really important aspect. I had a client recently who's um, was very kind of like high flying kind of city um, broker, but then she got fibromyalgia. And so she's really had to downscale the way that she works. But the thing that kind of 
was so brilliant for her in coaching is that she she felt that she was being treated as someone who was already whole as opposed to still broken um, and that allowed her to just kind of be able to pick the tools that were right for her um, and be able to kind of figure it out for herself you know that that kind of it's not a magic wand experience you know you 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 have to allow people to try stuff out and if you're going to try something different then trial it for a couple of weeks see the difference notice if there's any improvement and if it is and go right we'll take some more of that we'll keep going with that you know for example I've spent so much of my time trying to convince managers to let people work from home over the last eight years no 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 can't possibly everyone's not nobody's going to work of course that's been blown out of the window now isn't it and, and it means that what it means that people neurodiverse people in particular can control the environment the ambient sound not having to move around from hot desk to hot desk having a predictable kind of you know work stable working environment means they're not having to process all of the sensory stuff and they can just focus on their work hmm. and, it, and it sounds like and I, I might be wrong here but it sounds like emma you can you can start a conversation as, as a leader with all the right intentions but, but maybe you can use a slightly wrong approach and end up going down completely the wrong path and the person feeling like um, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a terrible experience, whereas from, from a leader's perspective, they're just really just trying to find out how, how they can help. Yeah, I think if you're kind of doing it, like I say, from a, from a perspective of there is, so there is support out there and it doesn't have to be me giving it as mm. a manager like say for the, so the access to work process is a fund of money to help support people who have conditions within the workplace. So um, that can cover everything from dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, stroke, anxiety, depression, anything that impacts the way that your brain is working. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a process that's done with an assessor. So they have a conversation for 90 minutes, figure out what the impact of kind of what's going on the work and you'll be given a kind of a, a package of supports that might be different hardware, kind of equipment, assistive software and coaching. And that's paid for by the government. You know, that doesn't have to be the manager themselves kind of having to find the solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite often part of that process is about awareness for the manager. It's awareness for the team as well. And co-coaching can be part of that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's about as a manager making sure you're informed enough to have enough options to to give to the person rather than feeling as though you have to supply all the answers yourself because you're not there to to rescue someone you should never have to rescue someone as a manager you're there to kind of get the best out of them yeah absolutely um so so listen both i've been really sort of fascinated by by everything that we've spoken about today i just like to finish on um just a bit of a bit of a look to the future i suppose so um kerry from from your perspective you know what would you what would you like to see change in the next five years so that in five years time the this is the sort of conversation that's happening or these are the sorts of positive outcomes that are going on um i think it's it's creating that that open environment where people are, are proud to be able to say that they're neurodiverse and that companies um, and people recognize the strengths that that neurodiverse people can bring to the organization 
Um, and, and that having lots of different people working on a team actually works really well. If you've got everybody exactly the same, maybe not so much. So I think the recognition, because I think that starts the conversation um, that, you know, I am incredibly fortunate. I've got um, two people that work for me. One's with got ADHD and another's got dyslexia. They are amazing, incredible people. And I think because I'm quite open about my dyslexia, people um, are more comfortable to talk to me, but I want, I want everybody to be comfortable to talk about it. I still today get an email saying, oh, you know, I saw your blog about dyslexia. I've got it, but I'm, you know, I don't want to tell anyone about it. You're really brave. I'm like, I'm not brave at all. <laughs> but I think just creating that open environment allows us to have the conversations, allows us then to go, right, what's the right tools? And, and we can progress from there. So I think that's, that's the key for me. Cool. Thanks, Kerry. And, and Emma, what, what, what do you think the next five years should look like? Well, I would hope that we're starting to, to move towards a truly inclusive process, you know, rather than someone having to ask for things like assistive tech, that it's kind of almost part of the stationary cupboard. You know, every, everybody can access read and write, you know, or everybody can access kind of like dictation tools like Dragon. You know, you don't have to ask for these things and that there is enough, com- there are enough conversations for people to feel as though if they say, I need to do things differently, it's then not seen as a risk to the business or that it's going to cost extra time and money. Oh, I haven't got the time and money to be doing, you know, sort of doing mind mapping or whatever. You know, just having an acceptance that people will probably find a much better solution if they're given ownership of a project rather than, you know, take giving them tiny little kind of segments of something. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I think there's a, there's, there is a conversation about how we enable our children to be able to speak about their neurodiversity and, and understand what's going on for them so that they can then feel comfortable with it going forward. I think there's a, there's a, a lot of issues that come with un, not understanding and, and kind of misdiagnosis and no diagnosis. Um, you don't have to have a label, but just understanding if you need to work slightly differently, that that's okay. Mm. Okay. Thanks, Emma. Um, at, at the start of the podcast, I was hoping I would learn a lot, and I've not been disappointed at all. I've, I've learned a lot from you both in in both you know the experiences that you've had, but also the the sort of knowledge that you have on the topic. So I've been fascinated. I know I know people listening to the podcast will will feel exactly the same. Um, so thank you both for your time today. As I say, it's been a fascinating um, conversation. Um, so. If you, um, if, if uh, listeners, if, if you're a first time listener and you want to subscribe to us, you'll find us on Spotify and Apple Music and you, you can subscribe to us. If you're interested in following more about future leaders, then uh, go to LinkedIn where you, you'll be able to follow our page there where we've got lots of content. Um, equally, if you are looking for a mentor or would like to do some mentoring, you can go to our website, futureleadersmentoring.com and you can go through the join us journey there. Um, other than that, I'd just like to thank everybody for today. Uh, it's been a, a great podcast again. Um, and uh, look forward to the next podcast where we'll see you again. Thanks both. Thank you. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye.